Good morning to everyone. Let's just have one more prayer. It's been such an amazing morning, and a sense of the Lord's presence here is so evident and so wonderful. Father, our hearts are overwhelmed with gratitude. The sense of your presence working among us is so very special. Father, we ask that even for the last moments of this service, you will continue to speak to us. Thank you, Father, for Holy Week. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that we who were no people are now the children of God. Thank you that you've called us to a most holy mission to carry the gospel even to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll help me to share what you would want shared and anything that would be of me, Lord, I pray that it would be forgotten even before the end of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to uh, make an announcement and I want to uh, talk about a number of things some about the unfinished task of evangelism. Uh, I know I'm preaching in a way to the choir, but you know, I, I love uh, coaches' talks and getting ready for a game. I mean, I, that never gets old to me. And, you know, we're in the greatest game in the entire universe. I'd like to talk a little bit about trends, about uh, unreached people groups, Unimax people, and uh, especially what's happening in the Middle East. And I'd like to also include a Bible Bowl story. Don't let me forget that, okay? Uh, can we have the picture on the screen here? So many of you have been praying. Through the middle How's that? Is that better? Test one, two, three. Is that better? Okay, excellent, excellent. I wanted to uh, thank you all for uh, praying for Pastor Jamal. He's on on the right here. Terry on the left, uh, a tribal leader from the plains of Nineveh, very close to Mosul in the middle. I took that picture of Pastor Jamal about two and a half years ago in July of uh, 2011. He was arrested was incommunicado with his family for 37 days, treated very badly, and then for the last 21 months has served in prison. On Easter Sunday, last Sunday, we received an email from the Minister of Interior that the president of the KRG, the Kurdish Regional Government, has signed a letter of amnesty uh, preparing Pastor uh, Jamal's release. So... I read, I read that letter, I mean, I read that email on Monday morning, but it, it was dated March 31st, Resurrection Sunday. And so uh, we were so excited all week long. On Wednesday, we still hadn't heard any further updates. On Thursday morning, uh, we received an email that uh, basically very brief from the Minister of Interior saying, uh, hope, hope you're having a, a good day. 
And I uh, want you to know that uh, Pastor Abdi Ali Hamza, he weighs 231 pounds there. He, he's about 185 now. Pastor Abdi Ali Hamza has been released from prison today and has joined his family in the hook. Uh, when, when I was getting the full report, uh, Pastor uh, Jamal was talking to the prison warden this Thursday, and the warden uh, had good news for him. He said, uh, uh, Jamal, we want you to know that uh, you need to prepare yourself for release from prison. Paperwork will take about 10 days. And uh, so Jamal, of course, was just overjoyed, just feeling really, really good. And then about an hour or two later, the warden called him again and said, I want to talk to you again. He said, how would you like to have lunch with your wife today? And he said, well, that would be, that would be really nice. And uh, the warden said, what's your wife's phone number? And he called Follock and said, come to get your husband. He will be released today at 3.30. So we believe this is a miracle of God, an answer to the prayers of saints all over the world who have prayed faithfully for 21 months. And I cannot thank you enough. I'm so overjoyed, I can hardly put words to it. I talked to Terry Law this morning. He's in Europe, and I wanted to verify that Jamal, his wife, and his sons are all out of Iraqi territory. In fact, about 1 a.m. this morning, all of you were sleeping. Uh, The family arrived in a safe haven city and uh, are going to be cared for medically, emotionally, a lot of counseling, a lot of uh, downloading of what they've gone through. So thank you for continuing to pray for Jamal, for the family, and what an incredible, incredible, wonderful uh, day it is. I was thinking of uh, Jim Elliott's beautiful phrase, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Thinking about Jamal, he has been in prison three different times, 21 months this last time. During that time, he led 20 to 30 fellow prisoners to Christ. They would move him into the toughest parts of the prison with the terrorists, the Al-Qaeda guys, and he would continue to gossip the gospel to them. And the reason we knew that this was happening is when these prisoners would get released, they would call Follock, and they would say, your husband has led me to Christ. And so when we talked to him in prison, actually, about 43 days ago, uh, Terry and I, he said 20 to 30. He didn't want to make any exact claims, but he said that many have come to Christ. He has been a faithful witness for Christ. He's a former Muslim. He's a Kurd. His... Ancestors were the Medes of the Old Testament. And so just for a few moments, I'd like for us to to have another look at the great missionary work that all of us are called to. In fact, when I walked in this morning, I just glanced at the table, uh, the sign-up sheet for those who want to go on the missions trip, and it was like there wasn't room on the paper. I thought, wow, this is TCF. This is our DNA. This is what we're called to. But just for a coach kind of pep talk and encouragement were headed in the exact right direction. Let's just kind of review a few things this morning. Matthew 24, 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom 
will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. As most of you know, the word nations here is the word ethne or ethnic or ethnicity. I'm ethnically Finnish. I come from Finland. But in Finland, there are Swedes. There are Laplanders who live in the north. There are uh, other nationalities, ethnic groups. So uh, in the United Nations, we have some 207 nations. But the Joshua Project, the U.S. Center for World Missions, suggests that there are 16,594 ethnic groups uh, in the world today. Uh, And, uh, in fact, just if you want to do some more review, my sources today are Ralph Winner and Bruce Koch, Finishing the Task, the Unreached People's Challenge, the Joshua Project, uh, Terry Law, my observations, my travels, uh, all of that kind of combined. But let me, let me just give you a, a brief definition of what Joshua Project says an ethnic group is. For the purposes of evangelism, uh, a people group, an unreached people group, is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church-planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. And this statement was uh, cobbled by the 1982 Lausanne Committee uh, meeting in Chicago. It's been a very useful uh, phrase to explain uh, ethnic groups. A more recent term uh, is the term Unimax people and uh, is perhaps more used by missiologists today. Unimax people is the maximum-sized group sufficiently unified to be the target of a single people movement to Christ, where unified refers to the fact that there are no significant barriers of either understanding or acceptance to stop the spread of the gospel. The Joshua people say there are some 7,500 yet unreached ethnic groups Using the Unimax model, there are perhaps 8,000 unreached people groups. There are 2.87 billion people still unreached in the world. They're almost entirely in the 1040 window, some uh, 8,000 Unimax groups. And so we'll talk a little bit about that area of the world and what's happening there and why we should be excited about brothers like Jamal who are continuing in that part of the world to make a huge difference. Terry Law was at a uh, Luzon Congress on Evangelism in Cape Town in October of 2010. He said it was the most amazing meeting perhaps he's ever attended. 198 nations represented, 4,500 delegates as they worshiped the Lord. He said it was the closest thing to being to heaven before actually being there, hearing all these nations worshiping the Lord. During the Congress, there were many, many reports brought, and I'll just share just a couple of them uh, this morning, just as an encouragement to you that we are tracking in the right direction. In A.D. 100, and I don't know exactly how this information was compiled, but it's been published by the U.S. Center for World Missions. I believe it's accurate. 
In AD 100, there were 300, there were, there was one practicing Christian. A practicing Christian is somebody who would come to church on Sunday, read his Bible, pray, share Christ when he has opportunity. There, there was one practicing Christian among 360 people alive. In the year 1500, one in 85 were practicing Christians. In the year AD 1970, one in 13 were practicing Christians. Today, in 2010, one in every 7.3 people in the world are practicing Christians. In other words, they would read their Bible, they would pray, they would counsel you about what it means to know Christ. That is an incredibly exciting development. Statisticians, missiologists suggest that there are 2.33 billion people in the world today who call themselves Christians. And let me explain that just a little bit more. 1.35 billion would be nominal Christians. They would be Christians because they're proud they're Christians, because they've been Christians for a thousand years. They're ethnically Christian. And we see a lot of those in the Middle East as well. But at least they call themselves Christian. There's 2.33 billion. 1.47 billion Muslims. There are 960 million Hindus, 523 million Buddhists. Some numbers suggest that there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Let me quote Ralph Winter here. He stated that in 1974, more than 60% of the world's population lived within unreached people groups. Today, that has been cut to 40%, from 60 to 40 in just a couple of decades. This has happened as missionaries have focused on establishing church movements in thousands of previously unreached people groups. And then he goes on to say, we are in the final era of pioneer missions. If we do not waver in our conviction or take our focus off the essential missionary task, we can reasonably hope to see the body of Christ established and growing within the language and social structure of every people group on earth in our lifetime. That is an amazing, an amazing summary statement. In uh, 1900, uh, Millard would uh, be able to correct me on this, but uh, Africa was perhaps about 2% Christian. Now Africa is considered about 50% Christian, most of that, being south of the equator, there's certainly need for discipleship, but there would be those kinds of numbers in Africa. South America in the 1960s was not a very Christian place. Brazil today, from 1960 to today, has seen their evangelical population grow from 2 million to 50 million. They have one of the strongest missionary forces in the Americas. Uh, Some of you are soccer fans. Kaká, who is one of their great national heroes, uh, sometimes wears his Brazilian uniform and takes it off after the game and says, I love Jesus. He's a strong evangelical believer. That's how predominant evangelical uh, Christians are in society in uh, Brazil. China, we all know the story, the greatest uh, explosion of growth in the last 30 years in the in recorded history, a church of a couple of million, now well over 100 million by conservative numbers. The Chinese are preparing not only to uh, evangelize the remaining 
people inside of China and the unreached people groups, but to push across the stands and across the Middle East back to Jerusalem. They have a movement called the Back to Jerusalem Movement. The church in China has believed since about the 1950s that as, as the gospel left Jerusalem, came to Europe, from Europe to the Americas, from America to China, that it is their mission and their mandate to carry the gospel from China westward across the Muslim and Hindu nations, across the stands, and ultimately back to Jerusalem. They're preparing to do that, and I believe they will do that. As we look at the Middle East, let me just read you very quickly the story of Ishmael this morning. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Pretty amazing. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. She, uh, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants, that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Those of you who have followed Iraq and understand the Sunni-Shia battle that has gone on for 1,400 years is just a perfect example of that statement. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is remarkable, I believe. The angel told Hagar her son would be Ishmael. There were not many other instances in Scripture where an angel announced the name John the Baptist, Jesus himself. Hagar is told by the angel, your son will be Ishmael. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And quickly going on to Genesis 21. 
The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac (coughs) was weaned, Abraham held uh, a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. So she went her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba, When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. I think this is an amazing account. I think most Protestant evangelicals have believed, thought that Ishmael was Abraham's mistake. Yet God promised Abraham, I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. The angel said to Hagar, I will make him into a great nation. Genesis 12, 3 says, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you, speaking of Abraham. I do believe that the great multitude described in Revelation 7, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb will also include a significant representation of the 1.6 billion Muslims in the world today, the children of Ishmael, Now I just come to the concluding thoughts. Is there a reason that we should be encouraged by what is happening in the 1040 window? For that, in fact, is where the majority of the unreached of the world live today. That is the heart of Islam, the heart of Hinduism, the heart of Buddhism, of the 2.87 billion unreached, according to the Joshua Project, 2.79 billion are in that window The Joshua Project says 2,162 unreached peoples, 85% of them in the 1040 window. The uh, other uh, criteria suggests uh, uh, the Unimax people's report suggests 8,000, 85% of them in that area. Habakkuk 1.5 says, 
look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And I believe we are in that day. The reason I believe more than ever that we are going to see a great harvest from the children of Ishmael is because what I have seen with my eyes, what I have experienced as I've traveled, even over the last weeks in Saudi Arabia, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Turkey, everywhere I'm seeing transformed lives. I'm seeing people so excited about evangelism and reaching out uh, to their yet lost neighbors. Afghanistan, as you know, is one of the most closed nations in the world. We've been working there for 10 years. Uh, A very special place to me, a nation of 40,000 mosques, not one church building, yet there is a work happening in Afghanistan that is so real. We, 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 We are just in this dynamic tension of excitement to see what will will happen even in the next couple of years. One of my new good friends there, Robert King, who actually has Tulsa connections, he has uh, a degree from ORU. Uh, He raised his family in Mexico in large open-air crusades. His wife is a Kabbalist, born in Kabul. So now, for the last years, they've been in Afghanistan. He's a prophetic brother. But he said, you know, what I've especially done is collected prophecies about Afghanistan. He said, I'm a compiler of prophecies. The scripture says, despise not prophecy. And he has told me about many of these prophecies, about minarets falling over, about a great dam bursting, about a great uh, chaos coming to the nation. Uh, As you all know, uh, it's been publicly announced that Our stand-down will be pretty complete in 2014. There is more and more trepidation in Afghanistan as to what might happen. Our brother uh, Robert said there's even been prophetic words that uh, Hamad Karzai himself, in the midst of this great chaos that could very well be coming, would open the country so completely that there could be open-air evangelism happening in Afghanistan. We haven't seen it yet. We're just praying toward that. But that is an exciting thought. It's something that we need to continue to believe for. I was sitting in a guest house in Kabul just two weeks ago, the Cure Guest House. They're related to In His Image folk. Speaking with Dr. Jerry, he's from Chicago, a Filipino-American, incredible guy, over the last five, six years, he spent most of his time in Kabul working in the Cure Hospital. We were recounting what has happened in Afghanistan. He was uh, telling about the uh, 10 missionaries that died, and I knew one of them. He was uh, telling me about Dr. Little. In fact, his wife was in Afghanistan when I was there just two weeks ago. And recounting that over these last 10, uh, maybe, no, about the last 18 months, about 10, 11 missionaries have given their lives for Afghanistan. And we were just noting and observing and believing that the, the death of the saints is the seed of the church and that there is a price that has been paid for that nation. Let me tell you a Bible Bowl story. This is so much fun. Bahadur is our overseer in Afghanistan. He's Tajik. Bahadur Naskul, 
She's Kyrgyz. They have three children, Samuel, uh, Israel, and Esther. Samuel is about either six or seven, and he attends the ISK school, the International School of Kabul, which I like to call the Holland Hall of Afghanistan. It's the top school in the country, whereas normal, normal high school graduates, maybe 4 or 5% go on to university studies, 83 84% of ISK students go to university. And uh, it's an entirely Christian staff, maybe with one or two exceptions, teaching uh, uh, a typical high school program that we have in America, but emphasizing morality and values and having interactions individually with students. Well, uh, Mr. Or, or, or Samuel attends first grade, and he comes in the morning with his Bible story book at 7 o'clock with his mother. mother Naskul is a teacher's assistant. They get there early. He sits in the playground, and he has his Muslim buddies get around, and he tells them Bible stories from from his Bible story book. And then on uh, Fridays, they have, uh, I think his uh, teacher's name is Mr. Dooley, a wonderful, godly man from Canada. Uh, they have a time on Fridays in, in first grade where everybody can just say whatever they want, do little uh, speeches. And Samuel believes that that's his time to preach. So he brings his Bible story book, and every Friday tells stories uh, to his classmates. And then Often there's this big argument comes up, and, and these Muslim kids start saying, no, that's not right, and, and then Mr. Dooley gets involved, and they have this amazing interaction, and then Samuel just comes home and tells his parents that, you know, they don't all get it yet, so I just have to keep preaching, you know. So <laughs> Bahador said, you know, Samuel is doing more than all of us, and he's a seven-year-old, so I'm just wanting to encourage all you Bible Bowl graduates you need to be ready at any time to share the gospel. While we were in <clears throat> Afghanistan, we met an Iranian couple. We've been working quietly into Iran over the last couple of years, moving Bibles into that country. And we heard their story. I had met them probably before, but never really listened to their story. So I was kind of like to ask for inside information, you know, what's really happening. We've heard that there are large numbers of people coming to faith in Iran. Is that really, really true? These, these people were fairly new uh, converts, perhaps in the last six or seven years. And they said, oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. And uh, they said, there are six million believers in Iran. I thought, wow. I mean, we've heard numbers kind of like that, but I thought, how can this be? So then, then we... I was uh, just a week later, I was in Istanbul meeting with other Iranian refugees who are part of our project. And we were just telling, asking them, tell the story a little bit more. What's happening, really? And they said, yeah, that six million number is real. And all those uh, have come to faith since the revolution in 79. And they're almost entirely from Muslim backgrounds. And then they said, the uh, supreme leader, Ali. Khamenei has admitted that 16,000 Iranians are becoming believers every day. I thought, this, this is amazing. Then he said, there are probably at least 500 pastors in Tehran and in other parts of Iran that are in prison today. House churches, uh, there's probably at least 70 in Tehran alone. They don't communicate with each other. It's too dangerous if a brother is put in prison, his wife won't even talk to anyone about it because it'll incriminate the whole group. So 
They quietly sit in prison. As we've prayed for Pastor Jamal, we need to pray for them. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what if that number is 1 million instead of 6 million? I mean, I'm still not convinced it's 6. It could be. But God is moving in the hearts of uh, the children of Ishmael. Not, not all Muslims are Arabs, but all Arabs look to uh, Ishmael as their father. And, uh, there is a great awakening we were in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago, and this was perhaps as big a surprise as I've ever had. We were invited by a brother, Matthew M. Matthew, who was here in Tulsa in August of last year, attending uh, the Word Explosion. He called World Compassion, told us about his work, said if uh, you'd ever like to come to Saudi, you know, you're welcome. Now we thought, is that possible? But we just continued to work at it. I was in touch with Matthew, and then we got invited to be there in uh, February of this year. Uh, Pastor Matthew has evangelized among the Indian population. Saudi Arabia is a nation of 27 million, about 8 million expats. The expats essentially do all the work in the country. The Indian population is 3 million and so this brother Matthew has evangelized among the Indians and has seen over the last 16, 17 years, he spends about six months of his time there, six months in northern India, hundreds of thousands probably come to faith, 25,000 believers in Riyadh alone. And uh, he was sharing about how some Saudi households are also being affected. He gave one specific example uh, Indian ladies who are nurses work in the Saudi hospitals, and as, uh, if a Saudi woman gets sick, the husband doesn't bring her because he might have a couple other wives, so he doesn't have time to bring her to the hospital. Uh, but uh, the driver, you know, the driver of the house will bring her, and the woman, of course, is all just full of emotion and hurting, and the Indian nurses are like angels. They listen to her, they talk to her, they minister to her. And there are Saudi women that are, are coming to Christ through that kind of a witness. So uh, we, we just recently heard, really, actually in the last week or so as well, that there's, a, there's a, a special training program that has been developed very similar to the Alpha Course but for a Muslim population. And that course is being used powerfully. Terry, you'll want to know this, in Saudi Arabia. And in fact, we're going to be in that training together to be more equipped to use that course. But we were told that in the entire Gulf region, which includes Yemen, which includes Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the Saudis are responding more than anyone to this new course that is being utilized. So I think we have just every reason to rejoice, every reason to be excited. If we keep our focus, it is reasonable to think that the pioneer work of a gospel witness to every ethnic group can be achieved in our lifetime and uh, for that, I think we have to be incredibly excited.
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Father, thank you for this amazing day that we live in. Thank you that you've called us here at TCF to uh, carry the gospel even to the ends of the earth. We especially pray for the foxes this morning who are in the heart of the 1040 window, sharing in a story form the greatest message ever told with the colleagues, with the students, with neighbors. Lord, we pray you would bless them and you would encourage them. We pray for the Hannahs in Egypt in the middle of the 1040 window there. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to use them through the medical practice that they oversee, the training programs, and those that they see on a daily basis. Lord, we pray for others uh, uh, that are working in that region of the world that are making such a huge difference. Father, we thank you that one day when we are gathered before your throne, there will be a representation from every tribe, every nation, every ethnic group praising and worshiping you. Help us to be faithful, to continue to do the work you've called us to. We again thank you for Pastor Jamal's release. We see it as a miracle of God. And we give you all praise for that. We pray that you will bless Jamal, his wife, Falak, the boys, may they have a very special season of healing over these next weeks and months. And we pray that the work uh, that is being done among Kurds will continue and that many, many Kurds will recognize that they, in fact, are in the Bible, the Medes, and that it's only appropriate that they embrace the message of the gospel. Lord, we pray that that will be so. Thank you for giving us a great day. I pray for those who need healing, that you will continue to minister healing to them. And we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Joel, for giving us a perspective that we don't hear on ABC, CBS, CNN, et al., it's, uh, it can be discouraging reading the news about uh, the Muslim world especially and all the terrorism, all the violence, all the killing, but it's encouraging to hear what you shared with us this morning, brother. Thank you so much for that. You know, we have a unique thing with Joel in that he gives us this perspective um, and a counterpart to, to what, uh, we, what we don't get on the news. So let's stand together. Let me remind you also.